You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Danny Alexander, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So you're the co-founder of Who Gives a Crap. Um, I think people might know you for the toilet paper, but you've expanded into lots of great new products. There's so many interesting things to talk about making and selling toilet paper in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) But I would love for you to describe the problem that you saw when you started the company um, back in 2012. Yeah, it was actually two problems that really um, helped us lead to the beginning of Who Gives a Crap. One was an environmental problem. So you're probably aware we're headed uh, headed towards a a pretty large environmental catastrophe. And the way we were consuming goods um, seemed all backwards. Um, The brands that were offering environmentally friendly products at the time were offering products that were inferior and asking people to make huge trade-offs when they purchased these environmentally friendly products. So product quality was lower, cost was higher. Um, You often had to go to a natural food store or something like that to buy them. And our hypothesis was basically that if you could take the power of design and brand and um, and experience and basically offer a product that was more delightful, more environmentally friendly, more affordable, more convenient, then people would buy it regardless of whether it was environmentally friendly or not. So that was the first problem was the environmental problem. The second one was a, uh, a societal problem, which is just that we saw massive inequalities in the world and in particular Toilets are are something that we probably all take for granted, but over 2 billion people in the world still don't have access to a toilet. And we just thought that was absolutely ludicrous when we learned that. And so um, we dedicated uh, from the beginning 50% of our profits to to be donated to help support um, sanitation development around the world. And so we've donated about $5.5 million to date and I'm hoping to continue scaling that like crazy in the years to come. Over the past uh, few months, I've been on a lot of podcasts as a guest talking about packaging and supply chain and people were asking me all about, you know, our box factory is going to shut down and, and all of that kind of thing. And what's interesting is that in, at least in the U.S., box factories are sourcing their paper or are vertically integrated within the same organizations that produce the paper. So it's a very, in the U.S. at least, very vertically integrated industry where toilet paper corrugated boxes, it all comes from the same forests, but you're making um, bamboo-based toilet paper. What was your thought process around that? How did you come to that idea? Yeah, so we actually started our first product and still our largest selling product is made from recycled paper. Um, So it's actually made from, uh, you know, for example, old office papers or school books or things like that. Ultimately, it is the most environmentally friendly option. There's no cutting of any any plants to to produce it, and it requires the the least energy and water inputs. Ultimately, though, if you imagine the process of recycling, and you you know this well, every time you recycle paper, you cut the fiber shorter and shorter. And so, what we found um, and developed what we think is the the best quality recycled paper we're ever going to be able to develop, and and we're continuing to try to improve that. There is ultimately a natural limit, and there are people who want really strong, really soft, you know, the, the ultra luxe stuff that, that you see in stores. And so if we were really to bring our vision to life of creating the most environmentally friendly and delightful experience, ultimately we realized we needed an alternative for those people who were used to the ultra plush stuff in the stores. Hmm. So we created a bamboo line, which has a lot of the characteristics of a virgin paper-based product, but is ultimately sourced from bamboo, which is a much more environmentally friendly option. 
Just to, to bring this into 2020, I mean, we're recording this here uh, around the end of August, but back in March, <laughs> when the crisis really started to hit in the U.S., it was impossible to get toilet paper uh, anywhere. What was it like on your end? How did, what was that experience? Yeah, well, I've never heard from so many family and friends, I'll say that. <laughs> People yeah. came out of the woodwork looking for toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, we, we started to see weird trends happening in different countries. So in Hong Kong, we started to see toilet paper um, sort of panic buying kick off in Hong Kong and, and I believe Singapore as well. And so we knew it was a possibility that it might happen, but nothing could have prepared us for what we experienced. Around mid to late March, we basically, you know, logged on to, to check sales one day and um, sales went up several hundred percent day on day in Australia, uh, which is one of our largest markets. And then it went up 1200% the next day. At one point we were selling, I believe like 25 or 27 rolls of toilet paper a second in Australia, um, which is pretty mind boggling when you just imagine that many rolls of toilet paper flying out of our warehouses. So we actually um, were forced to sell out in Australia and then um, the US and UK followed shortly after that. Those are our three main markets. And so we were sold out um, technically on the website for a couple of months, I guess about six weeks in total. We were continuing to fulfill subscriber orders in that meantime. In the meantime, so we wanted to make sure we had enough inventory to fulfill subscribers' orders, um, but we weren't selling any new product on the site. In the meantime, we had a, a pop up on our website asking people to sign up for a waiting list, and in a, just a matter of a few weeks, we had over six hundred thousand people sign up for a waiting list. So the panic was real, and the supply chains were all rushing to figure out what to do with it, and we were producing toilet paper as quickly as we could. We're now fully back in stock, of course, and um, and operating on a much larger scale than we were prior to March, but um, it was a pretty amazing experience to be on the back end of that, figuring out how do we get toilet paper in the hands of the people who need it most. Did you have to do anything different operationally with the manufacturers that you work with? What was their response to all of this? They must have been flooded from every direction. Yeah, well, luckily we'd been doing a lot of work already to build up our supply chain. And so we had already increased the capacity on the production side. Interestingly, though, um, the main changes we actually made during that time were on the logistics side, working with our, uh, our warehouses closer to customers. So we ship out of, um, I believe, nine warehouses um, around the world now. And one thing that we did was actually, you know, we already had, let's say, a few thousand boxes of toilet paper, 48 rolls of toilet paper. We decided in our warehouses to actually unpackage those, cut them in half and repackage them in 24 roll boxes. Oh, wow. And basically deliver twice as many orders, even though they were half the size. And so that was one of the major changes we did. It was, you know, millions of rolls of toilet paper that we were um, repackaging by hand, which was a pretty crazy thing to be doing, especially under all of the strict guidelines of um, of the local uh, local authorities making sure that we were keeping our team safe on the ground. One of the big questions that's going on right now around e-commerce is how much of the trends that have emerged just over the past few months are going to are going to stick around and I think with panic buying of toilet paper I mean I think a lot of people were 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 commenting that you know people are not going to the bathroom more probably than they were before although maybe the bathroom that they're using is a different one it's the one at home it's not the one that uh, at the office right and if long term you know there are fewer people who go back to the office more people working remote that could change things but also there's the behavioral shift of even if everyone were to go back to the office, how many people are now going to be, you know, permanently shifting their habits uh, when it comes to, to e-commerce? And I don't know if you have 
any lens into that um, since you work across different international markets where um, the recovery is is taking place in a, a different way than it is here in the U.S.? I'd love for you to comment on on any of that. You know, we've been on the very lucky end of the spectrum here as a business. We started the business fully remotely. Um, we've since shifted, and we now have teams in Los Angeles and Melbourne and um, and uh, Manila and um, a distributed team in China. But we've always been a very remote-friendly and, and flexible environment. So we were lucky to be prepared for the, the work side of things. And then on the, the product offering side of things, I mean, who would have thought that toilet paper would be the product of 2020? But we were well suited to, to do well this year. And so, I, you know, I, I feel very fortunate on that side. One of the things that I think every business, regardless of how they've been doing, though, has learned this year is the ability to plan for multiple scenarios, right? The, the future is so unclear these days that it's really hard to know. And so our forecasting for the next year, you know, we're, we're operating many different sort of parallel forecasts based on what future scenarios might come to to be. One of the things that we have seen, Australia in particular, has been interesting to watch because they actually have been sort of the most panicky when it comes to panic buying. And so Hmm. um, the spikes in our sales there have been the most pronounced What's interesting about that is that in, in about a month ago, there was a, an outbreak in the state of Victoria where, where Melbourne and, and most of our team is based. And we saw a very quick um, reaction to pull everyone back home. Um, the government has done a great job of really sort of locking everyone down again and trying to keep the numbers low. What that's meant for us, though, is that we've seen a second wave of very intense panic buying. And so what we've realized is that actually, you know, I think some of the the trend will be durable. Um, people will continue to buy online products that they wouldn't have before. But I think interestingly for us, our success over the next year or so is also very, very directly related to how much time people are spending at home. Yeah, It's not something that we'd really thought about before. That might be silly to say that we hadn't thought about it before. We thought our usage was mostly linked to household size, which it is. Um, but now it's also really directly linked to how much time people are spending in the office versus at home. You mentioned subscription. I, I'm curious to learn more about how that, that breaks down in terms of your your customers, because it does seem like one of the big challenges that we have for CPG going online is retailers who are multi-brand retailers have a big advantage. If you if you can get all of your shopping done in one uh, shopping cart, that makes things a lot easier. You're more focused, from what I could tell, on, on the direct-to-consumer side, and subscription seems like a good way to go in, in that respect in terms of not creating too much extra burden for your customers. Yeah, it's interesting. The subscription for for some customers is less of a burden. For other customers, it's more of a burden. And so we've believed since the beginning that businesses who force their customers into subscriptions are are really not listening to, to what their customers' needs are. In particular, for a product like toilet paper, the usage is so variable based on mm-hmm. if you travel or if you stay home more, if there's a pandemic outbreak. You know, there are all these variables that really control how you use it. And so forcing someone onto a predictable time schedule is actually not really effective for a lot of our customers. So the majority of our customers are repeat purchasers, so people who are coming back to us, but actually aren't subscribers. And we think that's incredibly important for us to be continuing to focus on supporting those customers who choose not to subscribe, but continue to support us. So we do offer a subscription, um, and we think it's great. I I have um, been a subscriber, of course, (laughs) um, and I subscribe to many other brands as well. But I know it's not right for everyone, and and so we want to make sure everyone has an option. Do you think perception-wise, has there been at all a challenge in terms of you're selling a product that is relatively low-cost, not super heavy, but bulky. And I think a lot of folks like 
consider that something that they're just going to go buy at Costco or whatever, like in bulk. Has that been a challenge for you? Or, and how have you dealt with that from a communication standpoint? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, one of the, you know, of course, we're environmentally friendly. We donate half of our profits to help build toilets. Um, we have an incredible design and copywriting team that makes sure every one of our products is a delightful experience. Interestingly, one of the main value propositions that I think drives most people across the line when it comes to um, to finding new customers is the, is the the financial value, that our roles are actually cheaper per hundred sheets than most things that you're going to get in the stores. Um, so for sure, there are some products out there that are going to be cheaper than ours. But um, in terms of for quality, as well as the environmental performance, I don't think you're going to find anything cheaper out there. So that's just to address the value um, perception part of things. I think the other thing that's been interesting to realize is that toilet paper is actually a real pain in the butt to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's one of those things that, you know, I, I moved to Los Angeles from New York. And when I was a New Yorker, I remember lugging home 12 packs from the supermarket and it, it was a royal pain. It, it was exacerbated by living in New York and not having a car or any way of getting home other than walking. But I do remember that struggle. And I think a lot of people still would rather just order it online and have it delivered to them because it is so big and bulky. So so I think the, the online delivery as well as the price are, are huge drivers for a lot of our customers. You mentioned copywriting. And I think that that's also a big question that people who look at direct-to-consumer as a space you know, wonder about, is there brand affinity in every different category? And I think that you've done a great job since the very start and the name of the company itself of like bringing a sense of humor to what you're doing. How do you, how do you think about that from, I don't think most people really like think about the brand of toilet paper they necessarily want to buy. Um, How do you create a brand in an area where it's a very commoditized product? So we actually started the business with a crowdfunding campaign. Um, This was uh, about almost 10 years ago. And it was, uh, you know, er early days of crowdfunding. And we realized, you know, there were a lot of crowdfunding campaigns getting off the ground. And they were for really cool, innovative new products or like (laughs) big, cool new things the world had never seen. And here we were pitching a new toilet paper company, and we knew we had to do something differently. So somehow, luckily, I... I, um, my team uh, was able to convince my co-founder, Simon, to sit on a toilet on a live feed until we raised our first $50,000. And so poor Simon sat on, a, sat on a toilet and was interviewed by the press and um, live on the, on the internet for the world to see for about 51 hours. And so from that very beginning, we knew we needed to do something differently to get people to notice us. And it's one of the reasons our name is Who Gives a Crap. It's one of the reasons we've invested so heavily in, in making sure every part of our customer experience is a delightful one. At the end of the day, I think we've realized this year, you know, there was a period where we were sold out of physical product for, for a month or almost two months. And we could have easily just stopped doing things. But what we realized in that time was that actually we weren't in the toilet paper business. We were in the business of delivering delight to our customers. And it was a very dark period in many of our lives. Um, And I think we saw an opportunity to um, be sort of a beacon of light and hope for some of our customers. And so our creative team did some amazing work during that time. It was actually the the day after we sold out of toilet paper in Australia. It was our first ever um, full page uh, newspaper ad buy. And we put out an ad in um, a couple of major newspapers in Australia, basically saying something to the extent of, we're sorry we ran out of toilet paper. In case of emergency, tear this page up and use it. It's recycled too. (laughs) Um, And 
it was kind of ludicrous to spend some of our marketing money on advertising when we didn't have any product to sell. Um, but at the end of the day, we really do believe that we're, we're here to delight our customers. And if that gets them to buy toilet paper and other environmentally friendly products from us, that's great. But it's really not about the product at the end of the day. Can you talk about some of the other um, products that you've launched? Yeah, so we also sell a, um, a line of bamboo tissues. My favorite thing about the tissues, you open a, we, we sell a box of 12 um, of, the, of the little cubes of tissues. And when you open the box, all of the little the sort of circles on the top that you peel off of the box to access them, all of them have a different, um, a different saying on them. So I'm staring at one right in front of me that says, you deserve a donut, which um, I love. It just makes me hungry right now. Um, so we've got a line of, uh, of bamboo tissues. We also have a line of uh, bamboo and sugarcane paper towels made out of bamboo, which is, of course, fast growing and, and doesn't require a lot of the, the sort of nasty things that um, traditional wood re- requires to grow. And sugarcane, which is basically the fibers that are left over after a sugar harvest, basically being saved from being burned or, or otherwise thrown in, in the waste. What's the, where does the bamboo grow that you're, that you're using? So I, I think virtually all bamboo that's used in industrial purposes is grown in China. We source ours from actually small farms. So it's actually grown as a around the perimeter of a lot of the, the farms in, in rural China. And so you have these sort of local co-ops who support local farmers to trim the, the bamboo, sort of collect it and feed it into a, a more traditional paper supply chain. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty amazing story that we have to figure out how to tell someday the, the harvesting of the bamboo. Yeah, that's a really fascinating component of it. It's sometimes, at least in the packaging world, uh, we get customers who ask about, you know, sometimes it can be more expensive to make corrugated boxes in, in China than it is in the U.S., partially because some of the paper that is used in China actually comes from the U.S. A little bit less so now that um, China has started to like clamp down on recycled content coming back into China, but they're still buying because they don't have, they're still buying virgin fibers because they don't have as much tree uh, density. But bamboo is a whole different uh, category. And it's just interesting to think about, you know, what are the costs of moving, you know, bamboo tissue to toilet paper or tissue paper around the world? And like, how do you make that affordable? That that's a fascinating concept. Yeah. And we're we're in the middle of a, a full life cycle analysis right now. One of the things that's interesting that's guided a lot of our decision in these early days is that, you know, toilet paper is a bulky product, like you right. mentioned earlier. It's it's relatively lightweight, but it is really bulky. And so, um, you know, if you think about the value density or the, the density of the product, it's very low. And so to put it on the back of a truck and ship it around the country, especially a big um, sort of sparsely populated country like Australia, where we, we started the business, it's a very intensive thing to ship by truck. And so uh, we actually focus as much as possible on shipping by boat and then by train and only by truck um, when, when possible, only by truck to a customer um, at the end of the, the, the sort of the journey. But yeah, I think we're, we're in the middle of a life cycle analysis right now. And so we're going to learn a lot that will inform the future of our supply chain in the years to come. What's been your thought process on which geographies you're focused on? You mentioned Australia and you've expanded to Europe. Like, How do you think about which markets you want to be in? Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of an art and a bit of a science. Um, so when we started um, with the crowdfunding campaign, we, we did technically launch in both Australia and the U.S. And for some reason, the brand just took off in Australia. I think they might have been more primed to it because there was no Amazon in Australia. The, the brand name probably had a bit more resonance in Australia. And so we decided to focus for the first 
five or six years of the business just in Australia. We ended up uh, coming back and launching the U.S. and U.K. about two, two and a half years ago, basically with the, the naive belief that, like, how hard could it be to launch in the other two major, like, largest uh, English-speaking markets? Uh, we just shipped the product there and turned the, turned the website on, and we're good to go. I'm glad we did in the end because we have learned a lot about how all the different geographies have performed, but it was definitely a challenge. This year, we, we have just turned on our European storefront, so we are shipping to um, most, of, uh, most of Europe now. And we're looking into future expansion you know, in, in Asia, in South America, in all, all parts of the world. Ultimately, though, we have to calculate sort of what's the, what, what does the competitive landscape look like, of course, but also how does the brand translate and how, how capable are we of translating the brand into, into the local vernacular. So even within English-speaking markets, there's a challenge between mm. different translations and what, what resonates and what doesn't. And then when you layer on top of that translating into German or to Spanish or Italian or Chinese, you know, Mandarin, it's a whole different ballgame. And so we're, we're starting to dip our toes into that now in Europe, and we'll learn a lot about the complexity it delivers, um, it, it adds to our business. Can you go into some of the changes at all? Like, what it, what are UK? How how how's the language different in the UK than it is in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably less about language and more about sort of value propositions. So, for example, plastic free um, as a movement has been massive in the UK for about five years, hmm. um, whereas in the US, it's it's starting to catch on now and in Australia as well. But, you know, if we put ads up with, with Plastic Free in the UK, they're going to perform two or three times better than the US or Australia, for example. Whereas in the US, there's a lot more focus on save money by signing up for a subscription. I think that's something that people are more comfortable with here than in other markets. So I think in general, like we've tried as much as possible to keep the core product and language um, the same, but we need to tailor the sort of the angles that we're positioning um, differently in different markets. We've had a few B Corps here on on this podcast. You're one of them. I want to dig into a little bit of your approach. I know you you mentioned early on you've dedicated 50% of your profits to sanitation efforts. I'd love for you to describe a little bit about the scale of this now that you're almost 10 years in and, and what you've been able to accomplish there. But then kind of on a meta level for people who are starting their own companies, how should they think about that when you're making that promise up front, you know, it can be a really challenging thing to to maintain over the long term. How did you feel comfortable that you could maintain doing that this whole time? To be honest, in the early days, I, I remember having conversations with uh, with Simon, one of my, one of my co-founders, and saying like, why don't we just make it 10 percent? Like it's it's uh, like it's uh, it's still an amazing thing, and when we're big enough, that's still going to be a lot of money. You know, in the early days, our first donation was for $2,500, right? So Mm -hmm. the difference between $2,500 and $500 wasn't that great at the time. Uh, I feel really lucky that Simon really pushed back and basically said, like, we as a society need to figure out new ways of making the world more just, essentially. Um, And business needs to play a role in this, right? Business is the greatest engine of growth we've ever seen. And if we can drive some of that growth towards solving some of the world's problems, then ultimately we'll be able to um, make a huge dent in the world. So so I'm grateful that Simon pushed back and and worked to keep the 50% donations. It's now written into our our constitution as a business, and uh, we've tried to make it virtually impossible to remove. As a business, we actually 
we do have a one-year plan. We also have a five-year vision. But what we're actually all laddered around that we start every company-wide town hall with is uh, measuring our success towards a 30-year big, hairy, audacious goal, which is making sure that everyone on Earth has access to a toilet. And so every new employee basically gets onboarded with this mentality of like, if we miss our one-year goals, that's okay. As long as we're or our quarterly goals or whatever, we're here to make a 30-year difference. Um, and so viewing things with that kind of lens is, is really interesting and changes a lot of the way you make decisions. And so rather than, make, than think on just quarterly or yearly goals, we really are targeting that longer-term vision. Ultimately, for us, it's going to be challenging in the years to come. You know, our donation this year of, of over $4 million this year alone you know, if we raise capital at some point, it would be very easy for investors to come in and say, like, that's an easy boost to margin right there. Let's, you know, trim that out. And one of the reasons why we haven't brought um, in outside capital in terms of um, venture capital in historically um, is that we really want to prove that this model can work mm-hmm. and that actually it's the best investment the business can make. And I remember speaking with an investor at some point um, in the past, and he actually said, I think you have an unfair competitive advantage in that you've forms the business with this at its core. And what he meant by that was basically that a lot of businesses are now trying to figure out how to retrofit their existing businesses to, to actually do good, right? And to, that customers now are so looking for brands that are good to the core that it's going to be hard to retrofit a Coca-Cola and make people believe that it really stands for something more than just like a delicious drink. Whereas for us and for other brands who are formed with this at their core, it's actually something that's a competitive advantage in the years and decades to come because it really is something that customers, I think, more and more will look for is that sort of DNA of doing good. What I like about your goal also is that it, it can be completed. Like there's the, the idea that someday everyone has access to a toilet is something that, you know, if you have this trajectory of 30 years to accomplish that goal, like, it can end, but in a good way that you can move on to something else in the future. And I think that that sometimes for companies that are trying to do something good, they don't necessarily have a endpoint in any way. And I think that makes it more challenging. Uh, whereas if you if everyone can rally towards, here's where we're going to get, y- y- it gets a little bit more practical what your decisions should be around that. Absolutely. And we actually, some of the organizations we support have a similar model which is not um, common in the NGO model. But if you think about it, every NGO should be hoping to go out of business someday, right? Or, or almost right. every NGO, right? Like If they solve the problem, yeah. If, there's, if you're solving a, a societal problem, then it, once the problem's solved, you should either be able to pivot onto a new one or, or, or exit. And we actually do support a few organizations that, um, that do take this approach of basically, okay, once the city has um, re- achieved X, Y, and Z milestones, we're actually exiting that city and we're going to hand over responsibility to the local government or support the local government in, in taking on their parts of it. And so it, it is an interesting model. I think it's going to be very effective is my hope. And for us internally, it gives us like very ambitious, but also measurable goals to set for the next 30 years. Well, I always think about Microsoft. I think it was like the end of the 90s or early 2000s that they kind of reached their mission because they had for a while a mission that was something like put a computer on every desk (laughs) and then it became this sort of existential problem that microsoft had which is that they accomplished it they they basically did it Mm. um i mean sure i'm sure there's lots of people who don't have a computer but um we kind of got to that place 
And I think that's kind of okay that they had an existential crisis. Like, oh, what what are we going to do next? Right. And I don't know if you can fast forward in your mind. Like, okay, if we if everyone had toilets, like, what would we do next? I don't know if that's even something that you've thought about. No, I mean, I I can't imagine there will be a world free of all problems by then. So I'm sure we'll find another problem to tackle by then. (laughs) So, um, but I I I figure I'll start thinking about that in about 20 years. (laughs) Uh, Is that the horizon? How do you actually like keep track of those numbers? Are those published anywhere? Yeah, so I mean, the the WHO publishes, um, uh, you know, the numbers about the the number of people who have access to different levels of um, sanitation and water. Um, so when we started the business, it was actually 2.4 billion people lacked access to adequate um, sanitation. It's now 2 billion or a little over 2 billion. So interestingly, there has been pretty massive progress in the last few years, largely because of um, India. There's been a huge push in India to um, deliver sanitation to most people uh, um, in the country. The challenge with a lot of these numbers is that um, they look great in the short term, but actually the way a lot of the toilet construction has happened in India, for example, is that they're probably unsustainable. And in a few years, many of those toilets will be out of commission. Mm. And so whether they can sustain those numbers is going to be an interesting challenge. And so it's it's not only a matter of giving someone a toilet and walking away. It's about creating a sustainable infrastructure and um, ecosystem for people to have water, sanitation, and hygiene access within their within their homes and within their communities. So, yeah, it's a, it's a super complex, nerdy world of toilets, but one that I love to geek out on. <laughs> well, how do you decide how to deploy the, this capital and where geographically to put it, what countries need the most help, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we identified early on that we were experts in making and selling amazing products. We were not experts in sanitation. I actually worked for an organization called IDO.org for a couple of years um, and uh, worked a lot in sanitation while I was there. And so I had a lot of firsthand experience designing and implementing sanitation systems in, in, in Ghana and in, um, in Kenya. But ultimately, I don't know what type of toilet someone in rural Bangladesh needs versus um, someone in urban India, for example. So we believe pretty wholeheartedly in supporting our partners to, to make those decisions. We also identified early on that many of the problems in the, um, in the world of um, international development are sort of rooted at the, the, the funder level that funders impose a lot of intense restrictions on organizations and really hold them back from doing their best work. And as an organization that works in the private sector, we look up to venture capitalists, for example. They do a lot of things wrong, but they also do a lot of things right in terms of placing big bets and seeing, um, seeing outsized returns as a result. And so we basically consider our donations in a similar vein. We have a blended portfolio of some less risky and some more risky initiatives. But at the end of the day, we're looking less at the individual project level implementation and more at the organizations who have amazing track records of um, high impact and, you know, very um, cost effective impact and who have a team in place who we believe can deliver sustainable sanitation solutions. So making sure they all have heavy local presences in the places they work, making sure they have a track record of amazing leadership and um, sort of visionary leadership. And so ultimately, we look for these these kinds of partners and then look for a blended portfolio of some larger sort of multinational organizations, some smaller, scrappier local um, startups, um, and kind of everything in between. How did you figure out that this was a problem that you really cared that much about, that you were going to like dedicate, that you were going <laughs> to say, I'm excited about working on this for 30 years. I think that that can be a very daunting 
decision moment for for any entrepreneur, even when it comes to just the kind of company they want to launch or the kind of products they want to sell. When it comes to like a big problem like sanitation, uh, and for you, it's a it's part of your mission. I, I, I'm just curious how you developed that conviction that that was something you were going to work on for a long time. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think what resonates with a lot of our team, we, we, I give an, a presentation to all of our new team members, and it's basically walking them through our impact strategy and, and um, history and, and future plans. And at the end of the presentation, it's basically, that's our, our purpose as a business, but it's okay if that's not your purpose, right? I think everyone's mm-hmm. drawn by different things. And at the end of the day, I think most people just want to do good, right? And some people have a particular area, whether it's animal welfare or climate change or something else, they have certain elements that are like they're really drawn towards. And so I think for, for other businesses, honestly, I think starting somewhere is better than nothing, right? And so yeah. just like pick anything and, and make a difference. But for us, I think, um, and, and I think to be honest, um, I, I'm going to speak for Simon, my co-founder who had the original idea. I think it sort of was that. He he was running a nonprofit bar. He had run a nonprofit search engine. He was looking for ways to create change in the world and was looking for a physical product that he could make that cre- was a very scalable business model and would help him scale the impact side of the business faster had that classic epiphany moment where he walked into a toilet uh, or a bathroom and saw a, a roll of toilet paper and said, that's it. You know, we'll sell toilet paper, we'll call it who gives a crap, and we'll donate half of our profits to help build toilets. So I think for him, it was kind of, um, he wanted to make a difference and redistribute resources in the world. For me personally, I have a truly personal and um, deep love of toilets, which may sound weird, but mm-hmm. about 10 years ago, I was put on a project um, with IDEO, the the innovation consultancy before IDEO.org existed, to basically design and develop in-home sanitation services for the urban poor in Ghana. I remember that project. Yeah, because I was... Really? Well, yeah, I I went to to school at Art Center for industrial design. And so IDEO was was like on the list of like companies that I'd love to work for someday. And, And yeah, they were doing... I remember that project. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. My, my wife went to Art Center as well, and she and studied product design, so may, we'll have to catch up later and <laughs> get to know each other. But Maybe. Yeah, so that project was basically transformative for me because we ended up developing a, a, a service model, right? So it was a physical product, and it was basically a, a toilet that sat on, a, on the ground. It wasn't hard installed, and it had a cartridge inside that someone could come and collect every couple of days. And so it was really rethinking the idea of, um, of toilets from being a, a product and rethinking it as a service. And what was amazing for me about that project, I'll I'll never forget some of the prototypes. I mean, you can imagine lugging like 10 full-size toilet prototypes around the world um, from San Francisco where we built them to Ghana. It was quite a trip or a few trips, but I remember leaving it in someone's home and we knew that it would make a difference from a from a health perspective, right? Like we knew all the statistics around the impact of um, sanitation on people's health. What we didn't expect is for people to come out of the woodwork and talk about the dignity that it helps them achieve. And so mm. <laughs> we had this terrible, um, this terrible situation where someone basically over flooded the toilet uh, prototype on day one. And we were like, oh my God, that's the worst thing ever. How did that happen? And it was because they had thrown a party for their whole neighborhood to come and see their new toilet. And we realized that it was actually not a product that was just about solving a utility need. It was about providing a different level of, of life um, for, for a lot of these people. And so the elderly, the handicapped, 
honestly, just everyone. It's something that product designer or service designer could de- develop that understood local norms, that understood chemistry and physics and all and, and business, but that also was having a, a massive impact on the quality of people's lives. And so from that project onwards, I developed a deep love of toilets. And so when I met Simon and he told me this idea, I was basically like consumer packaged goods and we build toilets. Like I'm in, like I'm dropping everything and I'm in. I think it's amazing whenever you can work on things that are low on the Maslow's hierarchy where it can benefit a lot of people and really bring them to the next level of, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast right now is probably not on any of the like first two or three like rungs of that ladder. Um, But if you're literally, you know, lacking the basic sanitation, you're, you're really not able to think about anything that is more important. And that is just a, such a, an exciting problem to work on that you could bring people out of that situation. And there's been a lot of debate around, are we living at like the best time in, in humanity? I think maybe Steven Pinker, I haven't read his yeah. book, but is one of the people who's like on that trajectory, like making that case that this is an incredible time. Literacy is better than ever and sanitation and, and health. And, you know, we're living at an incredible time. You know, why are we all, you know, still so unhappy where do you stand kind of on that continuum of thinking about how far do we still have to go versus how much should we celebrate where we've come? You know, a couple things come to mind. One is our um, when we crossed the million-dollar donation threshold, it was a pretty amazing milestone that was also a bittersweet thing, for, for at least for me. It was a major milestone in that like a million dollars is a big chunk of change, right? Like there's no way that I personally could have ever donated a million dollars to charity. So this like as as something that I've helped create, that was incredibly satisfying. But, you know, it was also a moment to reflect and think like, okay, cool, a million dollars is great. But like what what did that buy us, right? Like what what impact did that have? And, and the impact is substantial for tens of thousands of people but there are still 2 billion people that we need to to deliver sanitation to. And so it was actually based on that million-dollar donation that we actually set the 30-year goal. So before that, we did kind of have this loose, like, we're just going to donate half of our profits forever kind of goal. Mm. Um, And so it was after that that we realized, okay, that was big, but we need to be thinking orders of magnitude bigger. We need to be growing at a scale that's unrecognizable to us today. And so I think it's important to, to celebrate some of those developments, but also keep our eye on the prize. So that, that's like the professional answer. On a personal level, I think one of the things that, um, that we try to instill, we have a, a strict no poverty porn policy internally, right? So as, a, as an impact-driven business, I think there's a tendency for people to expect to see sort of like pictures of poor people in misery and as asking for, you know, just a dollar a day and you can help save this per- person's life. Not only do we believe that's really outdated, but also just wrong, it's also just not accurate. When I um, was actually on that same project in Ghana, um, my first that was my first real endeavor into many years of work in, in international development. I remember the first time I, I went into a, a really um, poor community, and I was just horrified, honestly. I, I looked around, and there was like sewage in the streets, and people were living in, in tiny houses, really crammed together, and um, people were asking for money. And I just remember feeling a sense of pity, right? I was just like thinking about all the things that these people didn't have. And I remember about halfway through um, my second trip to Ghana, 
I remember sitting in a woman's house. Uh, her name was Madame Grace. And um, I was sitting in this room and just like asking her about how she used butter and toilets and just like tons of questions, spending the full day with her. Um, and I remember looking around her room and I was like, okay, she rents this place, but she owns a mattress. She owns a suitcase, which was very common. For some reason, everyone wanted to own a suitcase. She owns a couple of pots and pans and a toothbrush. And I'm, I'm like taking an inventory of that and calculating her net worth. This is uh, uh, like obviously not how I would think about her, but it led me to this conclusion that like actually her net worth is actually a lot higher than mine. Sure, I had a, a MacBook in my backpack and I owned a few more pieces of furniture at home maybe and a few other things, but I also had like $70,000 of college loans, right? Or $50,000 mm-hmm. of college loans. So actually her net worth was a lot more than mine. And that really changed the dynamic by which I, I ended up spending the day with her. And over the course of the rest of the day, and then in every other trip I've taken um, when I traveled to the developing world, it's really reframed the way I thought about, um, about this to basically see like, what do they have that I don't? And I've started to realize, and, and my wife and I ended up um, sort of leaving our, our jobs um, a few years ago, and, and I, I sort of jumped into Who Gives a Crap full-time based on this. I realized that I wasn't spending enough time with my family. I was traveling too much. I never got to be barefoot. I love mm-hmm. that like everywhere I went, people were barefoot and I always had like stuffy shoes on. People spend tons of time with their family. There's always music on. Like they're like incredibly close to their community. Like they could, if they needed help lifting something, they just like yell out their window and someone comes to help. Like all these things that I realized I was missing in my life, they had in theirs. And so as we think about the, like how we're doing as a society, I think it's important to, not just cast, you know, poor people as the other. It's important to think like, where have we gone too far and actually moved away from some things that make our lives better? And then what are those really meaningful innovations like toilets that um, I think can universally help people live happier, healthier lives? Do you have any advice for anyone who's wanting to start a company that is trying to do good? What what do you, I'm sure you've had entrepreneurs uh, in their budding careers like coming to you with that question. What do you tell them? Yeah, I, I think um, the entrepreneurs who are just starting are at the luckiest point because you have nothing to lose by doing this, right? Like I said, like our first donation was for $2,500. So like had virtually no impact on our business to, to make this a core part of what we were doing. Mm-hmm. I think one is that the more true it is to founders and the, the early teams, the better. Um, so I would encourage people to choose some issue that they care deeply about. But I would also encourage people to think about the long-term rather than the short-term. So thinking about like, what's the legacy you want to leave on this world or what's a, a, a business that you would really be truly happy to be involved in for the next 30 years or what would you run, want written on your tombstone, right? Is it like start, it sold an app to Twitter? Is that like, or is that really what you want written on your tombstone? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think there are plenty of brands doing um, meaningful things in the world, but I think the more true you can make it to your personal journey and the more you're going to be able to defend it um, because you do have to defend it along the way and you have to fight to make it part of who you are. Now, for us, it's now kind of a flywheel um, that the um, the team internally, you know, our first company value is give a crap, right? And so mm-hmm. someone came to us um, a couple months ago and said, I have an idea to start getting solar on the roofs of our of our warehouses. We don't own our warehouses. We don't operate our warehouses. It's third party. Um, but he had this idea and within a month he had, put solar on the roof of our first um, warehouse. And it's a a pilot that we're hoping to roll out broadly. 
we have other other teams that have done similar things. We had someone in our people and culture team basically say, I think our teams are kind of burnt out this year. This year has been really hard on a lot of people. And so we're actually about to um, give our teams a, a mandatory week off. And we've basically split the company in two. And we're going to give each half of the company one week off. And then the other week off will be a very slow week since there's like a half of the company is out. So there'll be a lot less meetings. And so all of these things sort of are now so ingrained into the culture that it's a flywheel and the ideas will just keep coming from the rest of the business. But I think in those early days, you really do need to defend the desire to make a company that truly does good. Are there people, books, shows, movies, um, podcasts, blogs, anything that um, have been particularly influential to you um, over the past however long decade career life <laughs> that that you would that you would encourage people to to look at yeah i i mean i um from a business perspective, I mean, the, the podcast that I listen to most is probably how I built this. It's kind of therapy for me. Um, I think mm-hmm. there's a certain struggle that every founder or every person who's doing um, something big over a long period of time goes through to like fail and learn and grow. It's easy to do that in, in private. It's hard to do that publicly. And so to hear other people who have gone through it privately or sometimes publicly is just so comforting to me and inspiring to me to, um, to keep um, digging in. So I think that's one from a business perspective. From a life perspective, I actually like try not to look too much at other entrepreneurs. I think there's more to learn about what not to do in the business world. I think the business world has been great for creating you know, these engines of growth, but have also created a lot of unsustainability and a lot of other problems. So I actually think um, a lot about like my personal heroes are, are more sort of in the civil rights movements or in the um, sort of history of um, societal change. And so I look up to people who are like much braver than I think most entrepreneurs are in the, um, the sort of cliche Mandela's and Martin Luther King's and, um, and, and other leaders like that. Yeah, I, I try not to look up to too much. And um, I mean, of course, I read Elon Musk's biography and things like that. But I get more excited thinking about how people are truly brave, putting their lives on the line to fight for big change rather than like growing the bottom line of a business. Has there been any, I don't know, documentaries or books or anything like that that have come up for you recently that you really enjoyed? Uh, Actually, documentary and book, I think 2020 has been for me a big year in terms of learning and reckoning with my position in the, um, the racial injustices of especially American society. And so mm. um, I watched um, the 13th um, documentary on Netflix, which is about the 13th Amendment and the legacy of, um, of that. And then I've also um, been, well, just finished How to Be an Anti-Racist and um, White Fragility I read uh, last year. So I think both of those are, have been really important for me and humbling for me to recognize sort of my place in, in racism and, and my historical and, and present day connection to them. And so um, internally, of course, we're doing a lot to learn as a business. Um, and it's been important for me to sort of be on the front foot of that and accept and acknowledge my, my place in those as well. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. Um, if people want to learn more, where should we send them? Whogivesacrap.org. Uh, yeah, I've got the the website pull up here. There's a lot of fun stuff to to see, and you've got a pretty cool like impact section of your um, website where people can explore some of the topics and in, in a little more depth that you um, mentioned. Instagram is also who gives a crap TP. Yep, check that out. There's always uh, some fun fun things happening there. Thank you so much, Danny. That was I learned a lot, and uh, I hope people did too. 
Yeah, thank you. It was a really pleasure and um, love what you all are doing at Lumi and um, love that you're also fighting to make uh, sustainability the mainstream option as well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.